wonder if you have ever looked at something and failed to see that which later became very obvious to you now that you had seen it. Uh, like these pictures, these will blow your minds, they won't really, but uh, I'm just... Uh, FedEx, now this is an American company of course, not really that familiar to us, but uh, when you look at the FedEx, this is a delivery company, what do you, have you ever noticed the hidden symbol in the FedEx logo? The arrow between the E and the X, have you seen that before? Look, I'm, I'm just, I'm, this is education right here. Now, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But how subtle and how useful a logo. This is the one that really blew my mind. I was not happy when I discovered this this week, and it took me 41 years of my life, essentially, to figure this out. Next one. For 41 Christmases, I have failed to see something hidden in Toblerone bars. Has anyone seen this bear before? Hands up if you've seen it before. Hands up if you've never seen this before, and this is an enlightenment. See? This is... Now, guess what? From now on, you're never going to not see this bear. In fact, you're going to be walking through W.H. Smith, boasting to your friends, see that bear? Yeah, I do. Now, once you see these things, you can't unsee them. But what's often helpful for us is for someone to show it to us. Now, I think the beginning of the, this section dealing with Joseph is a bit like this. Uh, on the face of it, in chapter 37, what you have is this hate-motivated trafficking of his brother, uh, of Joseph, by his own brothers. But as you take a closer look at it, you see the hand of God at work maneuvering the future savior of Israel into position. And once you see it, you can't unsee it, okay? Now, why is this important for us to consider today? Well, I'll tell you why, because nothing boosts our trust and our faith in God more than seeing his hand providentially at work in the details of life, particularly in his infallible word. Whether in good times or in hard times, you know, to see in good times that go our way, that God is providentially setting things up for us is a wonderful thing to see, like a conversion, a relationship, uh, a, a meeting of some kinds, you know, by the Lord's providence. Wasn't it providential of the Lord for us to meet in this way? You sometimes hear people say, even to get a job or something like that, to gain in some way. But I think it strengthens our trust in him just as much when we see that in the things that don't go our way, that God is still providentially working for our good, as we read in Romans 8. Now, this is a vital lesson for all of us to learn in relation to the Christian life because, now, I could be wrong on this. I'm happy to talk to anyone about it afterwards. But I believe as Christians, we're quite happy to ascribe um, uh, to whenever things go well for us, we're quite happy to ascribe all that well-being to the providence of God. Um, let me give, but maybe not so much the bad times, the hard times. Uh, you know, for example, if I speak personally, I've happily ascribed my conversion to God's remarkable providence. I met a girl at uni in Dundee who first told me the gospel, but I would have been at Aberdeen if I hadn't been going out with another girl before that, years before that, who wanted to go to Dundee. 
And I'd never have ended up meeting that girl in my school if my school hadn't merged with hers in fourth year, for example, blah, 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 blah. There are a million different things that worked to feed into this situation of putting me in a position to be in Dundee, meeting the person that I meet, to hear the gospel that I heard, and to believe. But it's often rare, as I've just said, to hear someone ascribe uh, hardships to God's providence. I mean, I could say, again, speaking personally, that I really wanted a happy family growing up, but in God's providence, I ended up with an alcoholic dad and all the collateral junk that comes with that. Yeah, I don't really ascribe that to God's providence when I've spoken about it. But what God reveals about himself, remarkably, I think, and emphatically, through the Joseph account, is that God is in the detail. Uh, God's hand is in it all. And that we can trust him completely. Now, let me show you from Genesis 37 how God is, in a sense, like those examples, those pictures I showed you before of how he is... uh, hidden in plain sight, working his purpose out, even even if we can't see it at first, but proving his trustworthiness so that when we do see it, we can't unsee it. So uh, I've got two points for us tonight. Number one, on the face of it, we see the hate-motivated trafficking of Joseph to Egypt. And we're just going to rehearse what's going on here. You've basically got um, the background uh, to this scene and the enactment of this scene in verses 1 to 36. You've got the background to it in verses 1 to 11, and it is pure hatred, really. Now, Joseph is hated in this section, we see, for three reasons. First of all, because of his father's favoritism. Um, uh, Just to remember, uh, if you've not been with us, even if uh, in our Genesis series so far. Jacob is the father of 13 children, uh, 12 boys and one girl, but they're, they're all born to four different mothers. Uh, this is a dysfunctional family in uh, many respects, uh, with Jacob, the figurehead, being very dysfunctional himself. But verse 4 tells us here that Jacob loved Joseph, one of the 12 boys, more than the other 11. More than any of them, it says. Now, why is this? It was simple. Verse 3 tells us. The answer's in the text. Joseph is the son of Jacob's old age, born to the only wife of the four that he only really loved. That was Rachel. And so we see that, that uh, Jacob, or Israel, if you like, displays his love and his favoritism for Joseph by giving him a special ornate coat. Now, don't let Andrew Lloyd Webber of uh, West End, I nearly said Wild West stardom, but no, that's wrong, West End stardom uh, affect a true reading of scripture. There's nothing in the Bible that says that this is a coat of many colors. It's probably just a coat that went down to his, that had sleeves and uh, went down to his ankles or something. It, that's, that's generally what it should be. So, Uh, Anyway, it's a nice coat, and it's ornate. It's got a nice trim, probably. But really, what it was, was the symbol of a father's sin, and crucially, in this passage, the object of the brother's loathing. Okay? Now, this is not a sermon on parenting, but let it be said just this once. Never, ever, ever show preference for one child uh, over another, because quite clearly, you see in this passage, favoritism fuels hatred in family life. And you can see the effect of that favoritism in here. Verse 4 says that when the brothers saw their father loved Joseph more than them, they hated Joseph and 
couldn't even bring themselves to speak a kind word to him. Now, shouldn't Jacob bear the brunt of his anger instead of Joseph? Well, he's sinning against them, his children, after all. It's a form of hatred in itself. But Joseph isn't really acting innocently here. But before we go on to notice him, notice this. Anger manifests itself in strange ways. We see this in these brothers here. Sometimes it's like a volcano, it's volatile, it's unstable, erupting at the slightest agitation, and the heat is felt by everyone in close proximity. But other times that anger is like an iceberg. You know, anger can make us strangely cold-hearted towards people, uh, unfeeling towards them, which in turn leads sometimes to fantasy in our minds and actions that the ice-hardened conscience has no problem with. That's a major problem. And what we see here in these brothers, and we should check for in ourselves, is the brothers' hatred at first seemed pretty cold-hearted, but then again, not for long. The application for us is obvious. Don't let anger simmer. Deal with it drastically. It tears apart that which is meant to be whole, even families. So the first reason we see in this passage why Joseph is hated is basically because of his father's favoritism. But secondly, we see Joseph is hated because of his own arrogance. Now, he's often portrayed in musicals and in books as an innocent party, but I don't think he is. I think he's arrogant and mean towards his brothers, and I think that's evident in what he says and evident in what he wears. Let's deal with what he wears first of all. We've already mentioned it. This coat, this ornate robe. He wears his father's favoritism on his back, much to his own delight. Now, favoritism, we see here, even fashions unhelpful forms of righteousness in those who are on the receiving end of it. And the Bible teaching is clear. There is no, no one righteous, not even one. But when someone shows you some special favor, you're almost tempted to believe that, yeah, you do deserve that extra attention. You've done something to deserve that special piece of apparel or that special gift that you've received. You may think, therefore, that you are better than other people. You have a kind of a form of self-righteousness. For Joseph, it's clearly a kind of a robe righteousness, a better son form of righteousness. And therefore, he lets his brothers know it. Now, believing that, believing that you're more righteous than anyone else is the first step to you being a right royal pain in the neck. Okay? It's true. Now, that's what he wears. What he says, well, Joseph, is, Joseph insensitively riles his brothers in this passage. Verse 3 tells us that he's told tales on them. Uh, the word bad in this report that he mentions refer, refers uh, to Joseph's news, to Joseph's report, not the actual behavior of the brothers. It's an evil report, really, that he gives. In other words, it's not true. He's misrepresenting them. Uh, now, why would he do that? Well, as we've just said, maybe he likes being number one, doesn't want to let the privileges that come with that go, or maybe actually he and his dad just quite enjoy this little weird, corrupt uh, uh, commendation of each other, this mutual exclusivity of this lovely wee relationship that they've got. Well, if so, they're co-conspirators and co-complicit in the hate crime and the hate culture that they've created. 
So Joseph demonstrates his arrogance in what he says to his dad, but also in what he says to his brothers, actually. In verses 5 to 11, we see this really clearly. This is, uh, this is, this is the, as he gives these reports of these two dreams, it's, it's quite tactless, really, isn't it? He's not being sensitive. Now, Joseph has, as we see in verses 5 to 11, two dreams, uh, one agricultural, one celestial, and there's a pattern in both that not even the dullest of the brothers could fail to pick up on. Joseph was basically pointing out through these two dreams that he was number one and everybody else, even daddy and his deceased mummy, would somehow bow down to him. That's what, that's what he's interpreting from these. Now, um, Joseph is not unaware of the fact that God has used in these early times of biblical history spoken unusually and infrequently, but certainly through dreams, and that God holds the interpretation of these dreams. We'll find that out as we read Genesis chapter 40. So technically, he knows what he's doing, and so he's interpreting these dreams, but how is he presenting them? Does it sound like he's presenting them as Look, I know this seems really weird because I'm not the firstborn and I'm not the one naturally perhaps through, through whom the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and our father Jacob is going to come. But there's going to be a, somehow I think there's going to be a time when all of you are going to bow down to me that I'm actually going to reign over you in some way. I, I'm not sure and I'm very sorry about how that sounds, but maybe we can figure it out together. It doesn't sound like that. He's like, hey, I'm number one. You guys are going to bow down to me. And he doesn't sound like he's doing anything but enjoying us. Now, you can imagine how this went down. To the brothers, brothers, it's outrageous, as we see in verse 8. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? This is a boy of 17. His brothers are anything between 2 and 20 years older than him. Is this what you're aiming for, Joseph? Do you think we're actually going to let this happen? It was so outrageous, actually, that even his dad rebuked him in verse 10. But kind of like Mary, with the news of the angel about the incarnation, was slightly captured by it and wondered at it. What, what does this mean? He wasn't quite ready to dismiss it entirely. Now, what was the result of Joseph? The way of what he wore and what he said with his brothers. Verse 8 tells us plainly. Look at it with me. They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And verse 11 ties it up for us. His brothers were jealous of him. So we see Joseph insensitively enjoys the privilege as Jacob's favorite son in front of his brothers. He unwisely shares what God has revealed to him, but completely left out any mention of the Lord and completely left aside any possible means of communicating it humbly. And what happens? Well, we see what happens but there's one more reason before we get to why he's hated. Joseph is hated not just because of his father's favoritism and Joseph's arrogance. He's hated because of his brother's entertainment of sin. As much of a nightmare as he is, a complicity for sin lies with the sinner. It's as straightforward as that. Uh, James 1.14 tells us, Each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. How true is that in what comes next? 
we see the enactment of this then, of this trafficking of Joseph to Egypt in verses 12 to 36 is something that is downright horrible. Joseph is subjected to the most horrifying experience. And it's premeditated too. I mean, if you look with me at verses 18 to 20, um, as he's approaching them, they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes out of his dreams. So these cisterns are like kind of bottles in the ground. So they've got the neck, but then they're almost bulbous uh, underneath the ground. In other words, once you're in, it's impossible to climb out. If you get the chance, if you're in St. Andrews anytime, go to the castle. They've got a cistern like this in the grounds of the castle. If you get in, cry for help because you're not getting out. Now, Sometimes it's hard to see how Jesus' teaching about how hatred is always tantamount to murder. But here we have one of the clearest descriptions of the end of everyone's hatred, the painful removal of the object of it. And painful it was. Painful for Joseph, not to mention his inconsolable father. Between, ver uh, between 23, verses 23 and 36, what do they do? Now think about these actions. They strip him. They assault him. They imprison him. They, they conspire how they're going to kill him. They're going to leave him to die. And they traffic him in the end. They sell him. Now, think for a second about the trauma of all this. Imagine Joseph turning up at the start of this episode, probably arrogantly ready to get a report, only to find himself surprisingly set upon. They've never done that before. Then hear him pleading for his life from the pit while his brothers cold-heartedly sit there and enjoy a meal. And a good laugh. Genesis chapter 42, 21 says that uh, at the time of the, the famine-induced dilemma when it comes, the brothers are saying to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, so he's pleading, let me out, please. But we would not listen. That's why our distress, in other words, this famine has come on us. So we know this is traumatic for Joseph. The experience of being thrown into the cistern thinking, I'm never getting out of here. How am I going to survive this? And then that, maybe that little glimmer of hope of being spared his life, being brought out and then being sold to Egypt as a slave. Carted off, never to see his family again. From favorite son in God's chosen family, to a soldier's slave in a home without any family is what he went to, from and to. That's all what you see at first sight. On the face of it, that's what we see, the hate-motivated trafficking of an arrogant man to Egypt by his brothers. But look again. Though there's no mention of God in this passage, 
upon closer inspection, we soon see him in everything. He is indeed in hidden in plain sight. And that's point two. Hidden in plain sight. We see this promise-keeping God maneuvering Joseph to Egypt. In other words, he's behind it. He's planned it. He wants him there. Now, if you read verse 36 on its own, at the end of the chapter there, it's easy to just say, so what? Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of, the, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, if you didn't know what was coming next, you'd be like, well, that's Joseph out the picture, therefore he mustn't be the one, the chosen one through whom God's blessing is going to come. But we realize when we look at what's been said before, and actually for our benefit, what comes after, when we read the wider context of these actions, we start to see that Egypt has got to do with everything. So we go back, first of all, and read Genesis 15, and we'll see that this has got a lot to do with everything. Everything related to both the promise and the information that's given to Abraham, the figurehead, the father of these people. The information given to Abraham before this infertile old man had even had a baby. In amongst the magnanimous and glorious promise of more descendants than there are stars in the sky is some unsettling news. So before his people, Abraham's people, will make their home in the land that's just been promised to him, Abraham's descendants, God says, are going to experience 400 years of affliction. Know for certain, God says, that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So why? Well, there are two obvious reasons, really. Uh, one not so obvious, but implied in the giving of the information, but two obvious reasons. The obvious ones first. One, they were going to go through this period of affliction in order to grow in what they need, needed to be a nation. That is, time to reproduce, to become a people, and to gain wealth suitable to the establishment of a nation. And two, to allow sufficient time for the sins of the people living in the land, called the, they're called the Amorites, to allow sufficient time for their sin to reach its peak. Now, that's a strange thing to say. But those are the two clear reasons. The, the not-so-obvious reason is that for the Israelites, and especially for those reading this when it's first given, as they are getting ready to enter this promised land for the first time, it is to prepare them. It's to prepare them throughout these years of affliction even. To prepare them for it so that they wouldn't be surprised and reject God and say, he doesn't love us or else we wouldn't be in this mess. But it was also to strengthen them during it so that they would know that God had set a limit on it. There was a time frame to it. And he was doing something still through it. Otherwise, they might give up on him. So it's fascinating then how much like Genesis 15 and that original promise, that word that God has spoken about, the things that must come to pass, sheds light on this human trafficking of Joseph 
into Egypt. So what's Egypt got to do with anything? Well, everything, especially when we read forward. When we read forward to the Exodus, and especially chapter 12 of Exodus, how long did the affliction last? 400 years. How many people came out? Anything between 600,000 and a million. What did they leave with? Riches from the Egyptians. Please take these things. Please don't let your God do any of these 10 things against us ever again. Take whatever you want. You want animals, you want, you want money, you want jewels, you want gold. They left with the plunder of Egypt. Where were they headed? Canaan, the promised land to take as their own. So now we think about all that we've read in chapter 37. And we start to see how it fits into the picture. We start to see how on the face of it, it is a, a story about how some hate-filled brothers traffic their brother into slavery in Egypt. But what's hidden in plain sight is that God is working his purposes out to get Joseph into Egypt to become the, the, the man that he is by shaping him through his affliction, to then position him in a position of authority, even through the dreams that he's once here used to brag so that he might be the savior of the people and therefore the savior of the promise. And we start to see how much it matters. And we start to see how God has tied up his trustworthiness in a passage that seems as dark as this. No loose threads with God. Nothing is arbitrary with God. Not one single thing. In fact, we might go back to Genesis chapter 37 and look for what some might call the coincidences or the, providen the providences, if you like, of Joseph. Because coincidences in here really are crucial clues to the hand of God. When you think about all the ways that this could have been very different, you know, why send Joseph and not a servant? I mean, why was Joseph's meeting with that eavesdropper in Shechem said, oh yeah, I overheard the brothers saying that they were going to go to Dothan. Was that just pure luck? Is it pure chance that the caravan of traders appeared while the brothers were taking a break from assaulting their fearful and probably praying brother? Is it just happenstance? I love that word. Happenstance. That their destination was Egypt. Well, how many coincidences would it take for us to see that while the brothers are sinfully working to rid themselves of their brother, God is carefully working to provide for them a savior. A savior. And that's what he became. And at the end of it, the arrogant Joseph is no longer boasting that he's number one. At the end of this whole section, we're going to hear him talk about how, in a sense, God has choreographed it all. Now, how does this apply to us? What difference does this make in our lives as Christians? What difference does it make when we look upon 
the things that happen in our lives, like I was mentioning at the start, the good things, the providential meetups and the, the conversions and the relationships and all those things. But what about the hard things, the things where there's lots of sin involved, the experiences that we go through? the hardships we all face. Don't we see that on the face of it, it's horrible and it's hard and sometimes it's happy and sometimes it's good. But at times when we, whether in good or bad actually, seem to wonder where God is at, a closer look reveals that he's just hidden in plain sight. That he is as he is with Joseph in Egypt, in his trauma, in chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph, with him. And all the false accusations, mistreatments, years in prison, years forgotten, before anything decent happens how God works even through the sinful actions of other people that affect us traumatically and hard, harshly to accomplish his own purposes. It's so unbelievably mysterious, at times utterly inexplicable. We're more like Job than Joseph. At least Joseph got to see some of the outworkings of this and the understandings of it, some conclusions before he died. Job didn't. Job got to the end of his life and still didn't know why everything had happened the way it had happened. And that's how it will be for many of us. Now, we often talk about these things in doctrinal categories like sovereignty and providence, but isn't, ama isn't it amazing to see these things that we talk about so vividly presented in a story like this, about how God works even through the sinful actions of men to accomplish his own purposes, never to the indictment of his own name, never to the detriment of his own holiness, never to excusing the sins, the actual sins, the actual accountable sins of the brothers. Of course, it's hard to wrap our heads around, but the Bible sets it out clearly. Even in relation to evil, God, it can be summarily said, Acts 14, 16, God permits it. Genesis 50, 20, God brings good out of evil. Matthew 4 and Hebrews 12, God uses evil even to test and discipline his people at times. And Revelation 21, that one day he will do as he has infallibly promised that he will fully and finally redeem his people from the power and presence of evil altogether. And what a day that will be. Until then, though, we will live. We ought to live knowing that in our lives, we are never in the grip of blind forces like fortune, chance, or luck. And we live knowing that God is not some chess player just racking up plays and alternative plays just waiting on the, the choice of his opponent before he decides to make his next move. 
And we also live knowing that God is not some interested spectator only intervening at key points, but know that he is constantly with us and constantly involved in every single aspect to the point that he is never not involved. And we are to live out these lessons knowing that all that happens is divinely planned and serves as a reason to trust, to believe, to really believe that in all things, yes, all things, whether the falling sparrow or the alcoholic father and all the junk that comes with that or whatever else, that God really does work for the good of those who love him. He really does. The detailed story of Joseph's life actually, I think, is among other things, just a loving letter from God to people who believe the gospel already and maybe to people like you, if you don't already believe the gospel, you're just thinking about Christianity and maybe you're here with a friend trying to figure out, what do they believe? What is this all about? Even this little passage to you, if you're not yet a Christian, it says to you, this is actually a part of history which makes, which which shows that Joseph is in actually a small way a savior, your savior. Uh, no, I, I'm not making a mistake here. He is in one sense a savior. He's not the savior, but through Joseph, actually Judah, one of the other brothers, this bartering human trafficker, let's not kill him. We can actually make some money from this. Let's sell him. Here's a caravan of people. Let's sell him to them. But it's through Joseph that Judah would be saved from the death of the famine that is to come and from Judah's bloodline of course would come the only true savior, Jesus Christ. That's why even this chapter matters to you today. Jesus Christ who would be in a sense like Joseph rejected by men, sold for money, condemned to death, but unlike Joseph, he would be actually killed in an act of despicable evil, yet ultimately where men worked his death for evil, God worked it ultimately for good, for his glory, and so that you could be saved from your sins and brought from, your, from being an enemy with God to being a friend of God's. If you want to find out more about that, talk to the person who brought you. Speak to me afterwards. Um, I'll be at the door for about 10 minutes after the service, or I'm going to leave uh, a few of these Bibles. If you want to read one for yourself and find out what it's all about, I'll, put, I'll turn the corner of a page down or stick something in there for a place for you to start, but we'd love for you to look into it. If you want to do that with a few more people who are on the same page as you, thinking about what Christianity is all about, we've actually got a little group starting up on Thursday night, which is designed to explore what Christianity is all about. Um, you'd be welcome to find out more about that. These little red flyers called Christianity Explored, they're down on the, the Connect corner out there. Please do pick one up. And if it interests you, sign up. Don't be worried about coming along. There's already a few folks coming along just like you in your situation, not knowing what all this is about and keen to at least get some information on it. Think it through. See how it all fits together. Or actually, if he so moves you, Say sorry for your sins tonight and put your faith in him 
he proves his trustworthiness by keeping promises that no one could ever possibly keep over durations of time that just make the keeping of those promises absolutely mind-blowing. There is no one else like him who can do the things that he does and indeed has done the things that he has chosen for our sakes to do. And of course, to those of us who are Christians, this is just another one of those reminders in Scripture that says, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter how sweet or bitter, no matter how good or evil, no matter how long the affliction, God has not left any of us on our own. God has not in the slightest taken his hands off the wheel. On the face of it, it can look like he has, but please, Genesis 37 says, take another look. There is never a time in your life when God is not hidden in plain sight. Do you believe that? Let's bow our heads together.